And I should uh, let you know that there is there are two other classes going on right now. This is the parenting class, Parenting with Purpose. So if you are not intending to be in the parenting class, there is a class on 2 Corinthians. Going through that book, just out these doors and straight back. And then we've got a college and career age class from 18 to 25 going on also. If you fit in that category, it's out this back door and straight across the hallway. All right, and you should have a new set of notes. And that new set of notes is for this reason. That I found out after I taught last week, I had a couple of people come to me and say, when you were going over the course description and the bibliography, that was not in the paperwork we had. And I didn't realize that, so I apologize. Uh, so the new set of notes that we have today has those two pages in it. And I wanted you to have those two pages because I will refer to some of the books that are listed in the bibliography uh, as we move on in our series. So everybody should receive a new set of notes today, even if you got a set last week. And if you took any notes last week, then perhaps transfer those over to the new set. This new set is the same, except it has the first two pages of a course description and the uh, the bibliography. Everybody have that? Guys have been passing them out. Looks like everybody does. Today we're on page three then and lesson number two. The introductory lesson last week in Parenting with Purpose was on what the purpose for parenting is. And we emphasized last week that God is the one who invented parenting and therefore we need to consult God about his purpose and what it is he wants us to accomplish as parents. And we're going to do that in the pages of the book that he's given to supply those instructions in the, in the Bible. So last week was about the purpose. It's God's, it's God's purpose. And we're going to hone in specifically on what God wants us to do as we proceed in the weeks ahead. But we saw last week in that lesson that the family is a community that does three things. It's a learning community. It's a sociological community and it's a redemptive community. Those three things. And so life is lived in the family and it is there where we learn things about ourselves. But we don't just learn things about ourselves in a vacuum because we are in a family, which by definition then has more than one person in it. And as we learn about God and we learn about ourselves and the stuff of life that takes place in the family then this social interaction with parents or as parents and with children and as siblings all takes place. So it's a sociological community. But sinners being what they are, and all of us are that, and all of us struggle in all of our relationships, then there are going to be times where redemption has to happen in the family as well. There has to be reconciliation because those relationships have been harmed. And that's why we say it's a redemptive community as well. Today we're going to hone in then on those uh, last two. Uh, we're going to be looking at, for weeks, what it is we want to teach our children at various phases of life as a learning community. But today and next week we want to look at what it means to be a sociological and a redemptive community. And that's on page three in your notes. So if you'll take a look at page three, 
And you see up at the top, it says Section 1, Foundations for Parenting. For the first few weeks of our 10 weeks together in this series, we're going to be looking at foundational issues upon which we build then as we seek to guide our children through the phases of, of their lives as, as parents. So these are foundational issues that are about family life in general and living with one another and acting as husbands and as wives if we are if we are married. That's what we're going to be doing the next few weeks, but stay with me, and I really encourage you to do that. Don't, uh, don't check out because what we're doing here is not directly how-to on the parenting. These are important foundational issues for the how-tos that we'll look at in the last half of the class. So we've got two major sections, and this one is called Foundations. The next section is called the Paideia Process. It's the process of guiding a child through the phases of, of life. And this first lesson in the Foundations, you see at the top, is titled Grace Spoken Here. And I say at the top of page 3, we've seen that the family is intended by God to be his primary learning community. And therefore, the family is first and foremost, an educational institution. God has given parents the task of reaching their children about him, teaching their children about him and his world by instilling in our kids an accurate interpretation of themselves, of others, and of their circumstances. And the family is the ideal place to learn because life takes place in the context of family relationships. And that's because the family is also a sociological community. In our families, we're forced to live with others, who anger and delight and disappoint us while we anger, delight, and disappoint them. In the process, family life reveals how well we love God and others, and it points to the need we all have for grace in our relationships. So this lesson is going to look at the family as both a sociological and redemptive community with emphasis on the crucial role of communication in both of, both of those. So we're going to see what the Bible has to say about how we communicate with one another as members of a family, the sociological community, and how we communicate with one another in order to uh, receive the redemption, the reconciliation that we are all going to need from and to one another in our relationships. So today and next week, we're going to be doing that. So first of all, on page three, I say a family is a sociological community, and it is this community, this small microcosm uh, a society of people that we did not choose. The members of our biological family are not chosen. Now, some of you may be sitting there thinking, uh, yep, I have got uh, some people in my family. If I had been able to go through a line and choose who they would be, I mean, maybe that's how difficult things have gotten with between you and, and siblings or between you and your parents. But, of course, you didn't choose your parents, and your biological parents did not choose you. They chose to have a child, but they didn't know what they were getting and who they were getting when they had that child. And even if you were, even if you were adopted, they chose you in that sense, uh, but they still didn't know what it was they were getting, and you had no choice in that matter uh, if, you were, if you were adopted. So the members of our family are not, are not chosen. And that means that I then am called by God to get along with people that may not be the same as me, even if we're in the same family. 
We have two girls, as I mentioned last week, and they are grown now but still living at home, 21 and 18. And we talk often about how different Lainey and Annie are. Uh, They are our children. They both came from the same set of parents, and they are quite different. And that shows up in the way they interact with us. It shows up in the way they interact with each other as, as well. They didn't choose each other. Now, I'm thankful that they're happy with each other most of the time. And they're glad that God in his sovereignty chose them for each other and us for them and they for us. So we're all happy about that, as I say, most of the time. But we have no, uh, we have no choice. And even though we are members of the same biological family, uh, there are still major differences between members of the family that force us then to get along with each other. And B, that being the case, family life exposes our social problems as spiritual problems. So because the other members of the family are not like me, because they don't all like what I like and do what I want them to do, because that's the case, and of course that applies in other settings as well, if I've got people who are not like me and don't do what I want and they don't do it the way I want, then that has the potential for difficulty. And family life is certainly a setting in which that happens. And so it exposes that. These social conflicts that we have within the family are at root spiritual problems. And Jesus got at this when he was asked famously, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And you'll remember, if you if you think of the law, you probably think of the Ten Commandments. You shall not lie. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. All of those. But Jesus responds to that, not giving any of those ten. He says, and we have it for you on page three. He was asked, teacher, which is the greatest commandment? He replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Now, Jesus didn't make a mistake. It wasn't that he didn't know the Ten Commandments. It's this, that the Ten Commandments are actually a summary of all of these other commands. And in fact, in the first five books of your Bible that are just called the law, the the law of Moses, there are 613 commands. And the Ten Commandments summarize all of those by giving you ten commandments that focus on the two directions of relationship that we have. One, vertically with God, from us to God. And that's why the Ten Commandments begins with, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any graven image. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The fourth commandment is remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. But then it shifts to horizontal relationships. Honor your father and your mother. And it goes on to give us the thou shalt not lie and you shall not murder, you shall not steal, and and you shall not covet, and so on. And so the Ten Commandments are a summary that cover the two major categories of relationship. Our relationship with God, our relationship with other people. And so Jesus quotes another of the laws in the books of the law, love the Lord your God. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 5 in your Bible. And Jesus quotes it saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And that summarizes those first four commands of the Ten Commandments. 
but then a number of other commandments that relate to our relationship with God. This is the first and greatest commandment. And Jesus says the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the other six then commandments in the in the ten that relate to our horizontal relationships. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. When Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, he's quoting from another book of the law. The third book of the Bible, Leviticus, in Leviticus chapter uh, 19 and verse 18. So Deuteronomy 5 and Leviticus chapter 19. And Jesus tells us that there's a connection between our vertical relationship with God and our horizontal relationship with others. That is, we cannot love others as we should unless we first love God supremely. So when we're having problems with people, this is happening because there is first a problem with God. And that problem with God is happening because of your problem with God or the other party's problem with God, or most often both. But there is always first a problem with God before there is a problem with people. We cannot love others as we should unless we first love God supremely. Supremely, The struggles we experience with one another in our families reveal an underlying spiritual problem. So as you think about then the foundation for your parenting, and you think about whatever tension may be going on. If there isn't any now good, then use this proactively. But if there is tension between you and your spouse, between you and your children, between the children and each other, underlying that is a spiritual issue with you or with them or with both. And James chapter 4 says that. It says what causes, it asks what causes fights and quarrels among you. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? The answer expected is yes. You desire, but you do not have, and so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. So why are these horizontal conflicts happening? Why are we quarreling and fighting? Why is there this tension? Because I and or they want something that they're not getting. And when I want something that I'm not getting, then that there's the potential for there to be a repayment, a punishment. You're not giving me what I want. So in some form, I'm going to punish you. And that may be yelling. That may be throwing. That may be just clamming up. It may be any, any number of forms, but there's going to be some consequence But the root of it is because I want something in my heart and I want, now hear this, I want that something more than I want to honor God. I want that thing more than I want to honor God. And so I'm willing to sin against you in my relationship with you because I didn't get this, whatever it is. Now, those of you that have been around here for a while know that I've explained this, uh, these desires as not being uh, evil desires necessarily. So it would be a mistake for you to read James chapter 4 and say, don't these fights and quarrels come from your desires and think those are desires for bad things. In fact, most often they're desires for good things. But good things that I want too much. 
I want children who obey me. Is that a good thing? Of course. But I want it so bad that I'm willing to sin when it doesn't happen. Now, how might I sin if my child doesn't obey me? I might, in anger, haul off and smack them across the face. Well, disciplining your child in anger is always sinful. And what did it stem from? Me wanting my child to just respect me. To do what I say. To to honor your father and your mother like the Bible says. So it's for a good thing. And very often the thing we want is a good thing. I want a spouse that fill in the blank. And it may be for a good thing. I want a wife who supports me in what I'm doing. And doesn't drag me down and doesn't, and doesn't, isn't negative about everything that I'm trying to do. I want that. Well, that's a good thing. But you can want it too much. How will you know if you want it too much? If you're willing to sin in its absence. Or I want a husband who will be a spiritual leader. And I'm willing to disobey God in order to get it. By forcing it, trying to force it upon him. You're gonna become a Christian and you're gonna act like it or else. And I've known women who do this. And that's a violation of God's word in 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 6. That says to wives specifically, if any of you have husbands who do not believe, then by the behavior of your lives, seek to win them, it says, without words. (laughs) Without badgering them. Constantly. So it's a desire for a good thing most often. That has not been requited, and so I sin in its absence. Family reveals that. Family is a sociological community, and it reveals these spiritual problems in our hearts because of the interaction between persons who didn't choose each other and are not alike. So that then brings us to number three. The family then is a redemptive community. Conflict happens, difficulty happens because you've got sinful people in relationship with each other. And our words play an important role in the redemption then that needs to be part of this. Our words are powerful. They can be used to bless or to curse. They can be used to build up or to tear down. Our words are the means by which we help or hinder those whom we are called to serve, especially our families. The Bible places great emphasis on the need for honest and constructive communication, words that build up. Bottom of page 3, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment. Edification, that is, to build up, construct, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom... You were sealed for the day of redemption. You see again here the relationship between the vertical and the horizontal. Don't grieve God, the Holy Spirit, in failing to do this in your horizontal relationships. Counselor J. Adams gives the context of that command. Page 4. It's from chapter 4 of Ephesians. And he says it opens with a discussion of the Christian life, the Christian walk. That is his daily man, the daily manner of life as a Christian. On the basis of the great plan of God's redemption in history that was unfolded in chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians, Paul, who wrote that book in the Bible, says this, I entreat you to walk in a manner which is worthy of the calling with which you have been called. 
In verse 17 of chapter 4, the theme is reiterated as he says, walk no longer as the Gentiles walk. In chapter 5, he speaks about walking in love, walking as children of light and being careful how one lives, how one walks. The discussion of the Christian's walk then in chapters 4 and 5 of Ephesians has to be understood not as a separate subject, but rather as an integral part of the discussion of basic Christian relationships. The life of the Christian, the Christian walk, is not a solitary one. Rather, it's a walk of one believer with others. When Paul talks about Christian relationships, he's speaking of the joint walk of husbands with their wives, of children with their parents, and parents with their children, and of businessmen with his employees. We do not walk in the paths of righteousness alone. Christ and our brothers and sisters are on the road as well. It's the walk of the Christian with the Lord and with other believers that's in mind here. So when the Bible talks about how we talk, when the Bible talks about talk and communication, then it's part of the larger picture of our Christian life. It's an expression of our Christian lives. And that takes place in our families. That takes place between spouses. That takes place between a mom and her child, a dad and his child. So friends, how you speak to your kids is a reflection of your walk with the Lord. That's what it's saying. So this issue of communication then would seem to be extremely important as it relates to us being a redemptive community in the home. And we've got a number then of instructions for how to communicate properly with each other in our homes especially, but in all areas of relationship. On page four, here's a list of some improper communication given to us uh, from Scripture. The first one is falsehood. It's obviously improper to speak falsely. Ephesians 4, from which that verse on the previous page is taken, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, says this, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. Now you might be thinking, hey, let's move on to the next one. I'm not a liar. And it's true, probably, that most of us here would not uh, often make contrary-to-fact statements. We're all prone to that. We're all certainly capable of that, but that may, may not be, and it probably is not the habit of most in this room. If you're asked where you were, you lie and say you were somewhere else. That's a contrary-to-fact statement. That's a blatant lie. So most of us probably don't do that. I say that here. Most of us will not consistently engage in blatant contrary-to-fact statements. We might. And if we're doing that, that's something that's obviously got to be put off. But we can and often do use wording that is patently untrue. And these false statements are often made in anger or frustration. So here's an example. It's almost never true to say, you never. But, you know, I'm mad. I'm mad at you. I'm frustrated with you. So in the heat of the moment, these words come out, and these are words that are not true. You never. You never do anything for me. Okay, what does it take to make that an untrue statement? One time the person had to do something for you. Which makes you never do anything for me, an untrue statement. So don't say it. Now what you mean is that you don't care for me enough. You don't take into consideration my feelings enough. That's what you mean. That may well be accurate. And if that's what's accurate, then that's what we should say. 
So we don't say you never or you always. We don't say that. We should not say that because it's almost never true to say you never or you always to our spouse or to our children either. You never clean up your room. I mean, worse yet, you never do anything right. Oh, how that will crush the spirit of a child to hear something like that. So we avoid things like that. Another less less recognizable example would be blame shifting of falsehood. That is, something has gone wrong. I don't want to accept responsibility for it, so I won't tell the truth about it. I'll seek to shade the blame to someone else. Move the blame onto, onto someone else. We see this in the opening pages of the Bible. The first sin enters the world, and immediately there's a breakdown in the vertical relationship of the man and the woman with God, and then the horizontal relationship between the man and the woman. The vertical relationship with God is broken and seen in the fact that they are hiding themselves from God. And their relationship with one another is broken, and that's seen in that they're blaming each other. They're shifting the blame. And God comes and says, what happened? And Adam says, the woman. First two words out of his mouth are, the woman. And then God speaks to the woman and the woman says, the serpent. Rather than take responsibility, we speak falsely about our culpability and what happened. So think about that, friends. Think about your own communication. Are you prone to any of these or things like them? Improper communication includes falsehood. It also includes unspoken barriers. That is, uh, our communication is not what it should be because there are these barriers that exist between us that we haven't talked about. They're unspoken. And here are a couple of categories for these kinds of barriers that are there, but they haven't been dealt with. One is, I say here, historical issues. Any relationship that has existed for some time allows ample opportunity to harbor real or perceived wrongs against the other party. If you've been married for several years, you've had enough time to build up animosity toward your spouse about real things they have done or failed to do or things you perceive they failed in. Maybe they actually haven't, but you think they have, but you haven't dealt with them. And without dealing with them and resolving them, then they fester and they become an unspoken barrier. You see this in all kinds of relationships. Uh, I, years ago, played for a number of years uh, on a Christian softball league. Now, I hesitate when I say Christian softball. Because most of the softball leagues that I've been involved in, don't the guys don't behave in Christian ways. Um, they get angry. You've got what Jim Rome, some of you know who Jim Rome is. He's a sports guy on the radio. You know, you got guys who are what he calls the softball guy. He's the weekend softball guy. You know, we're not, we're not, we're not, we're not very good. But we want to be, or we, we think we used to be. And so we're out there playing, and we've got this kind of pent-up anger. The worst guy is the guy who thinks he could have made it if he hadn't had that injury, or if he hadn't had some coach who ripped him off. 
And so he's out there not playing for fun. He's out there for blood. In Jesus' name. Christian softball. And I'm in this Christian softball league. And here's one of the mistakes this particular softball league made. They would hire one umpire who was the umpire, same umpire every Saturday. So here's the same routine. I, I did this for about five years. It was the same routine every year. You come on the first day of the season, and everybody's excited about a new season. And, you know, it's going to be different than last year. We're just going to play for fun. You know, and we're high-fiving each other and, you know, shaking hands with the ump and joking with him. And, you know, we have our first game, and things are fairly uneventful. I mean, he makes a couple of ball and strike calls that I didn't like. You know, he called me out at second when I was sliding in. I was clearly safe. But you know what? People make mistakes, okay? I'll let it go. Uh, but then the next game, that happens to me, maybe, and a couple of teammates. And you get, by the time you get to the fifth game, it's building up. And then it's just a matter of the second half of the season was always a wreck. Because there's this animosity building up between the umpire and the players. Now, mixing up the umpire would have helped because we don't have a buildup now of six weeks of frustration with this guy. And the point is, the same kind of thing happens in our other relationships at work and in the family. They build up if they're not, if there's not an outlet for those to be dealt with. So historical issues. I've told some of you this before, but a counselor tells the story of a couple that came to him for counseling, and uh, and the husband lays out his complaint first. And he says, "We were talking the other day, and she just went historical." On me, And the counselor goes, you mean hysterical? He goes, no, historical. She brought up everything that I had ever done. It just all came out because this had all been seething and then here it comes. So historical issues. But the important thing is they haven't been spoken. They haven't been dealt with. And then bottom of page four, sinful response is another category of unspoken barriers. Whenever we fail to deal biblically with issues, we engage in one of two responses, blow up or clam up. In this case of unspoken barriers, one of the parties prefers to clam up. There are numerous ways in which one can clam up. So what's happening is the person's doing the slow burn, the seethe. They're internalizing it. They're not speaking it, and it's creating a barrier, but it's unspoken. The other party may not know what it is. But it's there, and that clam up may take the form of escaping. I don't want to be around you because I'm harboring this thing or things against you, so I work overtime. I tell you I have to work overtime, but I really don't. I've seen this happen many times. So the husband decides to take the long way home. By the way, there's a song by that title. By those great theologians, Supertramp. The long way home. And, and the gist of that is, your wife seems to think, it's a lyric, your wife seems to think you're part of the furniture. And so you start taking the long way home. You don't want to go home. So you escape through work, through drinking, through hobbies, whatever it is. Unspoken barriers. Top of page five. Unspoken expectations. Expectations come from a variety of sources, from our upbringing, from the media, from our friends. We may even have false expectations because we compare the other party to a false standard, namely us. Why can't you be more like me? (laughs) 
The world would be great if there were just more people like me in the world. But this idea of expectations, you know, what's my spouse supposed to be like? And where did you get that idea? Where did you get the expectation that your husband or wife is supposed to be or do this? Now, if it came from the Bible, then you've got, obviously, the most reliable source. But if it didn't come from the Bible, if it came from portrayals in the media, if it came from what you see in other, or what you think you see in other relationships, why can't he be more like so-and-so's husband? Or why can't she be more like? Or why can't you be like my mom? Or my dad? This is what she did in our home. This is how she made our house a home. Why can't you be more like that? So we've got these expectations. And they come from a variety of sources. But very often, they're unspoken. You come into the marriage with these expectations. But they haven't been laid out. And the other party doesn't know that that's what you expect. And that they're being evaluated based upon other people. Or other experiences you've had. One of the things I try to accomplish in premarital counseling is this very thing. What are your expectations? Because so many couples get into marriage and then these things start to, to come out. But sometimes it takes a very long time for them to come out. They remain unspoken. And I say here, such unspoken expectations are a major source of frustration and anger. My wife will tell you that she had expectations of me when we got married <laughs> that were not fulfilled. Kim had a knight in shining armor kind of view of who her husband was going to be. I mean, I thought she got it. But she didn't. And of course, she's right. She's not in here, by the way. She's ticked at me about something. I don't know what it is. So, but she had that, and 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 so she was she was creating a standard for me that I was not meeting. I probably couldn't meet, but even if I could meet it, I wasn't. And so that created that created frustration for her over a period of time until she finally came to the point that she had to understand that. And she says this now: my husband is not my savior. My savior is Jesus. And yet I had such an idealized view of marriage that I thought it was going to ful fulfill everything. And so that puts a spouse in not only a very difficult, in an impossible situation. But we had that, and we had to work through that in the opening years of our, our marriage. I say here, these unspoken expectations are a major source of frustration and anger. Remember, depression and anger are the result of the difference between expectations and reality. So you've heard me say this before, but you got these two things. You got the expectations and you got what you what you expected to happen and what really happened. And invariably there's a difference between them. And the question is going to be now, which one of those are you going to alter? See, if you try to alter reality, if you try to alter the way it is, then you're going to be on a lifetime quest to change your spouse. Because I expected this, and that expectation ain't going to change. 
So you're going to have to change to meet it. Same thing applied to your children. I expected my children to be this. They're going to have to meet it. Now, if you were here for the first hour, you could be one of the prosperity people and you could speak the reality into existence and it would all change. But assuming you don't buy that heresy, then you can't hear this. There are a lot of things about the way it is, about reality, that you can't change. But here's what you can change, your expectations. You can moderate your expectations, particularly about other people and what they're supposed to bring to the table. Many of us are going along in unsatisfying relationships with our spouses, with our children, in our families, because we've got expectations of other people. And you can apply that at work. You can apply that in the church. You can apply that anywhere. All right, another category of improper communication is unwarranted assumptions. You make assumptions about the other party, but you don't have a sufficient basis for making that, drawing that conclusion. Contrary to what many have been told, none of us has a sixth sense that allows us to determine the inner motivations of others. Oh, I know why you did that. Oh, okay, I know what's going on. And then you're internalizing and drawing conclusions about why they did something or failed to do something based on assumption when in, when in truth you don't know that. And if you've been told by people over the years that you're a good judge of character without actually having to spend the time to get to know people. I mean, I've known people like this who say, I can tell what somebody's like when I shake their hand. I'm not making that up. That's a quote. And so here's the thing. No, you can't. You don't have that ability. God can see what they're like before they ever speak a word, before they ever do anything. You can't. So you need to humble yourself to have to deal with just the facts so that you don't make unwarranted assumptions. I say here, when we size people up based on anything other than objective fact, we sin. This sin is so prevalent in part because it has its own self-preservation built into it. Once we've adopted a particular lens through which we view somebody else, whatever they do is then judged accordingly. And so virtually every act confirms our original improper assumption. Do you see what I'm saying? I've already decided I know your game. I know what you're like. I know what the deal, I know what you're up to. And so now I'm viewing you that way. So some of you have heard me give this illustration in the past, but it's like that's what horoscopes do. That's why horoscopes work. By the way, you know, it, it, astrology is not Christian. Did you guys know that? Okay. So you don't need to read your horoscope and define your life by your horoscope and all that. Your life is not determined in the stars. But anyway, but the horoscope, you know, will say, uh, here's your horoscope for today. You're going to meet someone interesting today. So they're vague enough that you've got it in mind, and now you interpret events accordingly. And then you, you leave after reading that. You're on your way to work. You're speeding because you're late. You get pulled over. I can't believe it. I'm going to be late again. My boss is going to fire me. I'm frustrated. You know, I'm getting my stuff out. Give it to the cop. Will you let me slide? No. He writes a ticket. He takes forever. I cannot believe this. Why does this happen to me all the time? And then finally he leaves and you're driving to work and you're just stewing on this. And then finally you remember your horoscope. You're going to meet someone interesting today. 
And you're thinking to yourself, you know, that was a pretty interesting cop. You're seeing that cop through the lens of your, your horoscope. You may not talk to anybody else the rest of the day, but your horoscope was suddenly true because you already had that in mind and you're interpreting the events of your day based upon that lens. That's why the power of suggestion, you guys have heard that, is indeed powerful. You make a suggestion to someone, you lodge that, and now they see through a different set of lenses. Unwarranted assumptions. And notice what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. Now get this. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. You can judge words. You should judge words. You can judge actions. You should judge actions. What you can't do is place motives to actions. You don't have the ability to do that, and I don't have the ability to do that. Unwarranted assumptions. And then the last one here for today, unedifying communication. So communication that just does not edify, does not build up would fit into improper communication. This would include any communication that's destructive, slander, gossip, unkindness. And bear in mind, I remind you here, that communication takes place both verbally and non-verbally. The reasons for destructive communication are usually the sinful response to expectations or assumptions. So the things prior. I've got these expectations, you're not meeting them, and if you're the type of personality where you blow up instead of clam up, this is where now it comes out. I've got these expectations, they may have built up over a long time, and finally they just, volcano, here it comes. And you, and you blow up a barrage of unedifying communication. So you blow up or instead of, instead of clam up, you hurl accusations at the other party. And we'll end here because it's noon. We'll pick up there next week. But think about this. When that happens, if you're... And which one of these we do just as a, a personality type? Are you a person who uh, tends to be more of an introvert, somebody who's more uh, uh, outgoing? You're more talkative. You're the person who will, who will verbalize your frustrations. The other person clams up. Sometimes it's clam up and then it explodes. But when that happens, when it comes out, whether it comes out immediately, whether it comes out later, and you give this barrage to somebody and you say all of this stuff to them, hear this, friends. The hurt and the wound from those words is impossible to get back. When those words leave your mouth, you can't grab them back. Now, if you're sitting here and you're saying, oh, man... (laughs) I've done this barrage thing so many times and I can't get them back. I thought we were talking redemption here. Relationships can be reconciled. But those wounds take a very long time to heal. A very long time to heal. So even if you've done it in the past, be instructed. Don't make it worse by continuing that. And if you're and if you're frustrated with your children or frustrated with your spouse, Understand, if you succumb to that desire to just let it go, somebody's just going to hear it from me, man. I'm just sick of this whole family. That's going to wound people for a very, very, very long time. Now, 
can be reconciled, can be redeemed. It can be mended. We're going to talk about proper communication next week on page five and into the next lesson. Let's ask God to go with us this week, okay? Father, thank you for the opportunity to just uh, settle our minds and think about these important issues of relationship in general, but relationships in the home in particular. And, uh, Lord, uh, thank you for allowing us to probe from the instruction in your word uh, how we speak, which begins with how we think, which begins with what we desire. So, Lord, I, I pray that just this session alone will help us to start pondering what is it that I want? What is it that I expect? How is it that I'm holding others accountable for what I want and expect? And, and, and taking punitive action, whether in my words, whether in the, the coldness that I communicate to them, whether in withdrawing from them. Help us, Lord, to see that at root of all of that is what we want and what we expect. We ask you, Lord Jesus, to grant us the humility to be willing to alter our expectations and to, to, to alter our desires, to focus on the other person and what's best for them. In so doing, we will show you. We will show Christ-likeness in our relationships. And then we open up the very real possibility that hurts from the past can be mended, that progress can be made. We ask you to help us to do that this week. And go with us this week in our relationships. Help us to represent you accurately and bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.